Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. And as they came, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged at them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Theologian and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and also the person who um, puts on a a podcast called The Briefing, uh, Albert Muller, he recently wrote, the church cannot unhitch from the Old Testament without unhitching from the gospel Jesus preached. The word of God actually itself tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, Ecclesiastes makes that very clear. There's nothing new under the sun. We've all heard that expression before, but it's the absolute truth. There's nothing new under the sun. And that goes for for things like Christianity and our theology and apologetics and even the trouble that the church itself can get itself into. One of the things that, uh, that the church has had to deal with very early on was the tendency for some people to try to disconnect the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. You see, as early as the 2nd century, there were people who would push back against the difficult teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. Did God actually create all things in six literal days? Did Adam and Eve actually, were they in a garden together, and did did they actually talk to a serpent? Was there a literal worldwide flood that wiped out all of humanity except eight people? Did God, you know, why would he call for the genocide of certain groups of of people? Why would God call for the death penalty even for for children who were rebelled against their parents? And, And on and on and on it would go. It seems that some people almost from the very beginning of the Christian faith were were embarrassed by the teachings of the Old Testament. They, they found them difficult to swallow. They were hard for these people to reconcile. And because of that, some people sought to disconnect the message of, of Christ from the Old Testament, and maybe even parts of the New Testament, which was known as the, the heresy of Marcionism. Marcion was the second century priest, so we're talking about somebody within a hundred years or just a little more after Christ, the second century priest, who, who thought that the God of the Old Testament was this horrible tyrant and was, it was not worthy of worship. Right? But he loved, he thought, Jesus, and so he attempted to disconnect his theology of Jesus from the Old Testament altogether. Even much of the New Testament he wouldn't even use. In fact, the only scriptures he considered to be legitimate and inspired were, was part of Luke, the Gospel, not all of it, but part of it, and ten letters of Paul, and that was it. He took the rest and basically threw it in the trash. You see, for some, if, if, you, if you want to be a Christian, but, but there are parts of the Bible that offend you, there are parts of Scripture that you don't like, there are things in the Bible that, that, that bother you, then what you do is you simply cut them out and you throw them away and act like they never existed. Now, Marcion was declared to be a heretic by the early church 
Because the Bible clearly says all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All of it. It's all His Word. It is theonoustos, as we have talked about. It is the breath of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Even the stuff that, that, that talks about the love of Christ, as well as the stuff that talks about the wrath of of a holy and righteous God, even the stuff that's hard to hear and stuff that's hard to understand, even the stuff that we don't like, it is all the Word of God. <clears throat> now, Marcion was condemned nearly 1,800 years ago, right? Because the fact is, you cannot build your theology and your faith in Christ on sections of the Word of God. You must build your faith on the entire Word of God. And the Word of God and the church has affirmed that for 2,000 years that that's the truth. We must stand completely on the full counsel of the Word of God. But, but Marcion's spirit has endured throughout the ages. Because throughout history, people from time to time would rise up in the church who would be offended by something in the Bible, something in the Old Testament. Something even in the New Testament at times. And so they would simply begin to cut out the scriptures and the things that they didn't like in order to make the Christian faith more palatable. And as a result, they would lead other people astray. And this movement has come back over and over again. People who don't like certain things that the Bible teaches, they disconnect their theology from those scriptures. Like red-letter Christianity. I don't know if you've heard of that before. But it's people who say that really the only thing that counts is the red letters in the Bible. The only thing that counts is what Jesus says. You can take the rest of it and kind of throw it away. Well, this movement of, of trying to disconnect theology from certain parts of the Bible is alive and well. And it's kept alive by a very extremely popular, very well-meaning megachurch pastor out of Georgia. And last year, he was in a sermon series talking about the Bible, and he said that a lot of people struggle with what the, new, what the Old Testament teaches. And he said people struggle to come to faith because they can't seem in their minds to reconcile the Old Testament God with the New Testament God. He even said that many people experience what he called deconversion experiences. You have your conversion to Christ, but then he's talking about deconversion where you become unconverted because people simply just couldn't accept what the Old Testament was, was teaching. And so he believed that the problem with, is that Christians, right? it's not that they have a weak theology. He says the problem is that Christians are building their faith on the Bible. That's what he said. In fact, he said, and I'll quote you directly, if the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It's all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion. Unquote. And because of that, he believes that, that we should then unhitch our theology from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is hard for some people to reconcile. And so he said, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And he says, and my friends, we must as well. Or in other words, we must unhitch or disconnect our Christian faith from the Old Testament and its theology. He even further said, he said this, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the arguments. This is a megachurch pastor. In other words, we don't need the entire Bible, right? In fact, parts of the Bible, they get in the way, we just need to just get rid of that. 
If you get so many people coming to faith. Now, please understand. I know this pastor isn't deliberately wanting to become a heretic. I know that he wouldn't want to be called a heretic. I know that that he would deny that that's the direction that he's going. Right? In fact, he would even say that he has good motives. Because what what does he want? He wants to see people get saved. I identify with that. I think you probably do too. We all would want some people to, get, to see people get saved. And he, and he says he wants to remove the obstacles of faith that, that get in the way of people coming to Christ. I want that. I think you do too. We all want that, right? And so he thinks then, because he wants that, that it's up to him, and it's up to, him to take the message of Christ and, and save it from the Old Testament. That it's up to him to take the message of Christ and kind of clean it up a little bit and, and maybe file off the sharp edges a little bit and water it down to make it a little bit more palatable so people will be attracted to, to the gospel. That he, that he can make it taste better so they'll actually take it. He wants to take the offense out of the gospel, even though the, the Apostle Paul says the gospel, by its very nature, is offensive to those who are dying and perishing. The problem is not his intentions. The problem is his flawed theology of salvation. He just can't accept that God is sovereign over salvation. And this has caused him to embrace his flawed and incomplete view of scriptures. He thinks that it's his job to make the gospel more attractive. Instead of simply trusting that the gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. And because he has this flawed view of Scripture, he is developing a flawed view of the Christian faith. You see, the Christian faith is not built on a few Scriptures. It's built on all Scripture. As Paul says again, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is important and vital to the Christian faith. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to know all Scriptures to be a Christian. It means you need to be growing in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Because, because when you begin to downplay and ignore certain Scriptures and only focus on certain Scriptures, you end up with a flawed theology and a flawed view of Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see in today's text. We're going to see the outworkings of a belief system that's built on only part of the Scriptures and not all what the Scriptures have to say. Now, before we jump in here, let me just remind you where we are in the story. If you remember, the apostles have just come off this crazy, emotional roller coaster ride. Right? You know, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus says, You are Peter. Right? Blessed are you. Right? God's revealed this to you. Blessed are you. Right? That's how the conversation starts, and then it ends up with Jesus calling Peter Satan. Right? And, then, and then he tells the apostles their understanding of his mission on the earth and their understanding of their part in that mission is wrong. Jesus did not come to lead Israel to victory. He came to suffer and die. And he called his apostles to deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow him even to their own deaths. And then right after that, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John high up on a mountain to pray. And while they were up there, he shows them his divine glory. He is transfigured before their very eyes. He shows them who he really is in a mind-blowing, unimaginable fashion. And he, he does this in order to strengthen them for the road ahead, because the road ahead is going to be hard. 
And, and, and he was confirming his identity, and he was trying to fortify their resolve to follow him. And then once that supernatural event is over, right, it says they begin to come down the mountain. Verse 9, it says, And as they were coming down the mountain, right, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, when I read a text like this, I try to like put myself in their shoes to really try to understand what they're thinking. And when I do that, and I look at this text, my anxiety begins to grow here. Right? Because think about this. You have just witnessed the most incredible revelation of Christ's nature to date. No one's seen anything like this before. You've seen the glory of Christ. He glowed in the dead of night. It said that his face shined like the sun. Is what Matthew said. And, when, and then after that, you come face to face with Moses and Elijah, heroes of the face. You've been hearing about these guys since you were little kids. They've been gone for centuries, and you see them in the flesh. right? And, and then you're suddenly enveloped in the cloud of God's Shekinah glory that you've been hearing about for 600 it's been No one's seen it for 600 years. And then on top of all that, you hear audibly the voice of God the Father. Right? Imagine that. And then in an instant, it's over. And now you're coming down off the mountain with that experience fresh in your mind. right? Can you imagine how excited they must have been, how pumped up they must have been? And as they're coming off the mountain, Jesus is like, oh, by the way, guys, you can't tell anybody about that. What are you talking about? I can't tell anybody about that? What do you mean I can't tell anybody about that? That's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. No one has ever seen anything like that before. This is one of the greatest events in human history. I saw it with my own eyes, and now you're saying I can't tell anybody? You're kidding, right? I mean, if it was today, people would be like, well, wait a minute, I was about to post that on Facebook. I just wasn't in cell phone range yet, right? Are you kidding me? I can't tell anyone. But there it is, Peter, James, and John headed down the mountain with their heads still spinning from what just transpired, and Jesus says, you can't tell anybody, at least not yet. Then unbelievably, they didn't tell anybody. I mean, I mean, think about that. They actually obeyed. Right? In fact, it says, verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves. They didn't tell anybody, which really seems crazy to me. Because like, Jesus has been telling people from the very beginning not to tell anybody about the things that he's doing, and what do they do? They go tell everybody. In fact, in chapter 7, we, we see that Jesus heals a deaf man, Right? And, he, and it says, and, he, and Jesus charged them, commanded them, right? charged them to tell no one. Right? But what did they do? <laughs> they went and told everybody. He said, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. The more he said, don't do that, they went and did it. Sounds like my kids sometimes. <laughs> and we see this all the way through chapter 8 of Mark. He heals someone, performs a miracle, says, don't tell anybody, and they go tell everyone. In fact, the only time that Jesus says, go tell all of your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you is Mark chapter 5, where he cast out the legion of demons out of a man. And the reason why he did that, and he told them that, is because they did that in a Gentile area because he was not concerned about the Gentiles having the wrong idea about him being the Messiah. Right? Or what the Jews might have thought about the being the Messiah, because the, the Gentiles didn't know what the Messiah was, and they weren't looking for the Messiah. But every other time it says, tell no one 
And here in this moment, right after the most incredible revelation of himself, he says to tell no one, and they don't. Now, this right here actually should cause us to pause and ask why. Why would he say this? After this demonstration of power, why? I mean, think about this. All 12 of them were still emotionally shaken by what happened, but it only takes three of them up on the mountain, right? It seems kind of unfair that they get to see this and they don't go tell the other guys, hey, take heart, look what we just, what we just experienced. Right? And more than that, there are people around Jesus who were struggling to really come to terms with who he really was. Even the Pharisees themselves, if you remember, said, hey, give us a supernatural sign so that we might believe you. Well, this right here would have been the sign to give. This right here would have demonstrated clearly who he was. So why not? Tell people. Well, the reason simply stems from the fact that everyone around Jesus, I want you to hear me, everyone around Jesus had a flawed theology of the Messiah. Everyone around Jesus had a flawed theology, a flawed view of the the Messiah. Remember, no one was expecting a suffering servant. That was not on their radar. They were expecting a conquering hero. They expected the Messiah would would ride in and lead a revolt against the Roman Empire, drive them out, and permanently set Israel free from all oppression and make Israel the super world power once again. They were not expecting a suffering servant. They were expecting a valiant warrior king. That's what everybody expected, including the apostles themselves. And this display of power that he exhibited on the mountain would have been so incredible that it only would have served to convince that everyone around Jesus that he's what he's that guy, and they would try to force him to be king. In fact, in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, you remember that story, it says, and when the people saw the sign that, had, that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come in the world. And it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again from the, to the mountain by himself. Think about this. If that one miracle of feeding 5,000 people was enough to cause them to, to think that he should be the king, if this began to stir up right, their, their understanding or their false understanding of the Messiah, and the fervor around that, how much more would this transfiguration would have it done? How much more would the news of that you know, made the situation worse, where people would have just been emboldened in their false ideas of who Christ is and what he came come to do? And so Jesus said to them, Do not tell anyone until I have come back from the dead. In verse 10 it says, And so they kept this matter to themselves. But then, notice what else it says. It says, Questioning, what this rising from the dead might mean. Now this right here is a simple statement, but it's easy for us to overlook, and there's a, it's easy for us to assume some things. But here's the thing what we need to understand. These men were not perplexed by the resurrection. They weren't. They were not confused about the idea of resurrection. This was not a new idea to them. The fact is they already believed in the resurrection. Now, some people might be surprised to hear that, but they actually already believed in the resurrection. It's just they didn't believe in the resurrection in the way that Christ was talking about the resurrection. You see, they believed in the general resurrection of the dead at the end of days. They believed like the Pharisees did. 
right? The difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And they believed that on that great day of the Lord, at the end times, there would be the great resurrection of the dead, and then finally, final judgment, and God would set all things right. That is what they believed. And so the idea of resurrection and people coming back from the dead was not an issue for them. It wasn't confusing for them. It wasn't new. The issue was not the resurrection itself. The issue was the idea of one person being resurrected in the middle of history before the end of times. That's something they didn't understand. That is something they weren't prepared for. They didn't have any basis for understanding that. It wasn't even like remotely on their radar. That's why they didn't expect it. And so when Jesus spoke of him rising from the dead and saying to, to not tell anyone until that happens, that didn't make sense to them. Because, because think about this. Because at the general resurrection, once everyone's resurrected at the end of the age, what would be the point of them finally telling everybody about this transfiguration event then? Because at that point, it's going to be too late anyway. Right? It would not change someone's perspective on Christ. They would already been dead and they're being judged. It'd be too late for them to believe. So they were kind of bewildered by this. Why is he saying it this way? But here Jesus is. He's adamant about it. In fact, he spoke of rising from the dead just before. If you remember, he said that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be killed and rise from the dead. Peter's like, hey man, that's never going to happen to you, right? But Jesus right here is very adamant. And he says, tell no one about this until he rises from the dead. Okay, now... Think about all the things that have just transpired and all the emotional energy they've been spending here and all the, the wild ideas that must have been playing through their head. I believe that in this moment when he says that, that the wheels begin to start turning and the disciples are trying to work out right, what had happened and what Jesus was saying. They're trying to like make sense of all... I mean, their whole theological perspective has already been upended, right? And then they go see this thing up on the mountain, and again, their world gets bigger, right? And, and, and their minds are being blown. And, and now they're just trying to put the pieces together. Because notice, Mark, what he records next, what he says. He said, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That seems like a really odd question. I mean, I've read this text many times in my life, probably a hundred times. And this exchange right here, this, this dialogue back and forth between them and Jesus has been very perplexing to me over the years. Because it just seems like such a random question to ask at this point. Jesus shows them his glory, right? And then he says, don't tell anyone until I come back from the dead. They wonder what it means for, them, for him to come back from the dead, but they don't ask him that question. Instead, they ask this really odd question. Why do the scribes and teachers say, you know, uh, the law say that Elijah must come first. What? That just seems so random. Have you ever had the conversation with someone, and the conversation is going somewhere, and all of a sudden they start talking about something completely different? And you're like, did I miss something here? That's what it seems like. It's happening here. It seems like, from our perspective, it's out of left field. And this is such a weird turn of the conversation. They're, they're thinking and talking about what just happened, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And they're like, okay, hey, then what's up with, with Elijah and him supposed to be coming, coming back first? Again, it seems really out of place. And to make it worse, then Jesus, he answers. And what he says is even more perplexing. He says, you're right. 
Elijah does come first to restore all things. What? Restore what? What do you mean? Right? And then he says, and how it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Okay, how did you get there? How did that go from, from rising from the dead to Elijah to now suddenly you know, you're talking about the Son of Man must suffer many things? Where's the, what did I miss here? How did you get there? And then he says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. Well, wait a minute. You just said he's going to come and restore all things. When did he restore all things? How did he get here? How did that happen? And then he said, they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written. Again, when you look at just the words, it seems very kind of weird and on, on, on what's going on here. And, and to be honest, I'm going to tell you, like I wrestled with, with actually like dealing with this text altogether. Last week I was thinking what I could do is just read this whole section, right, beginning 1 to 13, dress, and dress, address basically the text we did last week, 1 to 8, and just kind of leave like you know, 9 to 13 kind of hanging there, just all by itself. You know? In fact, I even considered skipping it all together. Because, because I've struggled to see what's going on in this text and, and, and really what the point of this is. And, and, and even more than that, how does that even relate to us today? How, I mean, how, do, how does a text like this help us to grow? So I, I considered skipping it, but then, you know, I'm reminded, as I remind you, that Paul said, all scripture is theonustos. It's all breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is the Word of God, which means this Scripture is important, which means we don't get to skip it and leave things out. Every text of the Bible is in there for a reason, so we must do our very best to seek to understand it. And so in light of that, I just kept reading and reading and reading and digging into the text and pulling it apart. And I, and I began to look at each word in context. And I looked at each word in the Greek in context. And, and I read several commentaries. And I, and I thought about it and I prayed about it. And then finally, the light bulb went on. I know what's happening here. I can, I can finally see what's going on here. And, and, and so let me, if, if I may, let me just kind of lead you there and, and follow me, right? Jesus, he tells them that he must suffer and die and rise again. And then he tells them they must likewise pick up their own cross and follow him. That, that, right, that they probably are going to follow him to their own death. And then he takes these men up on the mountain, shows them his glory in a way that they never expected. Then he says, don't tell anybody about that until I've been resurrected. Which means, hey... We're going to be around for his resurrection. And they start to think, okay, if we're going to be here when Jesus is is resurrected, that means the resurrection, the general resurrection where everyone is raised at the end of the age, that resurrection must be really near. The resurrection is near. That means the end of the age is near. Wow, we're going to get to see it. We're going to get to see the end of the age. Jesus said we're going to see it. That means the end times are near. And, and guess what? We just saw Elijah. And what is the prophet? What does he say about Elijah? Malachi chapter 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of, his, of fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers, lest I come strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We saw Elijah. That means the end must be Near. You see, they were taught, and they, were, and they believed that Malachi 
what he was talking about was the end of times. And they were taught that before the end of times would happen, Elijah would first come back and prepare God's people. That's what they were taught. That's what they, were, that's what they believed and so think about this, okay? putting all the little pieces together. Jesus is talking openly about resurrection. They believed that, that that means the great resurrection. right? They believed then because they're going to see Jesus' resurrection. They're gonna, they're, that's going to happen at the end of times. Now, in that, they see Elijah in the flesh who's supposed to come before the end of times. And so guess what they're thinking? What's on their mind? What do you think is going to happen next? Right? They think it's the end of times are going to happen really soon. You see, this is the only thing for them that makes sense anymore at this point because their worldview has been flipped upside down five or six times in the last few days. Right? They think that Jesus is talking about the end of days and because he says don't say anything until he is resurrected, they're like, that means we're going to be witnesses to it. We're going to be here to see it. That's why this is such a weird question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come first? They think that Jesus is talking about the end of times. And to be truthful, this really caught them off guard. They weren't really thinking about that. Because remember what their theology of the Messiah was before. The Messiah was going to come back. He's going to come into the world. He's going to lead a military victory, drive out Rome. The king of Israel would ascend to the throne. They'd become a world superpower. And it was supposed to be like that for a long period of time. And then the end came. But then Jesus overturns their understanding of him and his mission. He he overturns their role in the new kingdom and said, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, maybe even to your death. And then Jesus shows them his glory, which is more than they ever ever imagined. They see Elijah and Moses, and they they experience the Shekinah glory of God. They hear the audible voice. I'm going to tell you, if I hear God's audible voice, I'm probably going to think that the end's coming. Right? And suddenly, right, nothing that they had believed before that moment even makes any sense anymore. And so in light of this new information, it seems like the only thing that fits their understanding is the world's going to end soon. Which is really something they were not prepared for. And that's why they asked the question, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They are trying desperately to figure it out. Is Jesus really going to is he really talking about the end times? Because it seems like he is to them. Then notice what he, how Jesus answers. He said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. He's like, you're right. The teachers of the law are right. Elijah does come first. The scripture testifies that Malachi says Elijah will come first, which means they must have been, okay, all right, whew, okay, we're on the right track again, right? All right, now it's starting to make sense to me again. Right? So, so suddenly this is becoming clear again, but then... Just as they begin to feel like they've got a handle on things, notice what he says next. Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written in the scriptures of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. You see, sometimes the simplicity of a text can cause you to overlook the depth of what's being communicated. You see, what Jesus is saying here is, you're right, the scriptures do talk about Elijah, that he must come. Scriptures do say that. But the scriptures also talk about me. And remember, I told you that I must suffer many things. And the scriptures talk about that too. The scriptures talk about the fact that I must suffer and die as a Messiah. Right? 
And, and guess what? Not just a couple of verses like, like Malachi about Elijah, because that's a couple of verses. Right? You build a whole theology on, a, on two verses. But there are lots of scriptures that talk about my suffering, like Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and you did not put them to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs, remember, the Gentiles were called dogs. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This right here is a messianic text about the servant of God. And it's very clear he was supposed to suffer. This is a graphic picture of the crucifixion of Christ. You see that. We see Christ on the cross. That's just one text. There's a lot more. How about Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12, verse 13? It begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind, meaning he was beat to a pulp, so that he sprinkled many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who believed what, we have heard, who believed what he has heard from us, and from whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, Before him, like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form of majesty or that we should look look at him, and no beauty that we should to desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But, we were, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that, that is led to, to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Because he, pour, he, was, he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Another clear messianic text. It clearly and explicitly explains portrays that the Messiah is going to suffer and suffer greatly. And there's still more. We find these texts all over the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. You see, what we need to pay attention to is the fact that these apostles who were with Jesus, they missed this. They've been with him a year and they missed this. They did not consider these scriptures. They did not realize what the scripture actually says about the Messiah and him suffering and dying. But here it was, right here, in the scriptures. It's in the text. Jesus says, the scriptures say, I must suffer. And it's right there and it's obvious. So what happened? How did they then miss this? They missed this because they got caught up in a popular theological movement of the time like people do today. The disciples got caught up in a theology that had become popular over time. You see, this idea of this victorious Messiah coming to set Israel free, and this idea of Elijah coming at the end of the age, these were, these were popularized and taught during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. This is what people were talking about. This is what they were thinking about. And many people, including the apostles, simply just accepted that since this was taught, then this is the truth. They accepted the ideas uncritically. They just believed them. And, and, and to make it worse, right? they thought since they knew the verses and the scriptures that people used to validate those perspectives, then it must be true. That's why the scripture about Elijah was so close to their mind. It was something that they talked about. They thought about it. Probably even memorized. Something they were really, really familiar with. It was something that they, had, they were taught over and over again. It was a focus of their theology. But then Jesus reminds them that there's more to Scripture than what they're thinking about. 
There's more than what they're actually focused on. Yes, the Messiah must come. And one day he will absolutely be completely victorious and he will set all things right. But first, he must suffer and die and be resurrected. It's right there in the text for them to see. The problem is they were so focused on what they were taught, they didn't examine the scriptures themselves. They didn't study it out for themselves. Otherwise, they would have understood what Jesus was saying. When he said he must suffer and die and be killed and rise from the grave, they would have been able to go, wait a minute, the scripture says exactly that. See, it's not the information wasn't available to them. It's just that they were not looking for it. They already had their minds made up, and they weren't looking to validate it. They were just allowing these popularized theologies to blind them to the rest of the truth of Scripture. And so, yes, the Messiah was going to come, and one day he would absolutely vanquish all of his enemies. We know that's going to happen. But before that could happen, he must suffer and die. And yes, Elijah must come to set things right. But as Jesus says, I tell you that he's already come. He has come! And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Jesus says, Elijah's already come. Right? And not the Elijah you saw on the mountain, but a man in the same spirit has come. And what we, when we read all the Gospels, what we know for a fact that he's talking about John the Baptist. That's what, this refer, that's what that reference is for. Remember what Malachi says. I want you to pay attention here. Malachi said, right, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the, the, the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of, of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then Luke chapter 1, we find out that the angel Gabriel the archangel Gabriel comes and appears to John the Baptist's father. And he tells him that his barren wife, who is in her old age, is going to have a son. And he makes a prophecy about him and he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But here's the important part. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, they thought this scripture was of, of, of Elijah was about the end time. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it was about. That scripture was about John the Baptist. John the Baptist coming into the world was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. Elijah did come. But the end didn't come with him. Instead, what came with him was Christ, who then lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and who died on a cross to pay a penalty that you couldn't pay. And he was resurrected from the dead, not at the end of times with the rest of the world as it will happen one day, but in the middle of history as the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead, proving 
that he is absolutely what he said he is, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised he would do, which is to save you from your sin and the wrath of God. You see, what we need to see here is they were wrong. Their incomplete understanding of, 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 of this whole scripture led to a flawed view of Christ. A flawed view of his mission. A flawed view of their part in that mission. And even a flawed view of the end times. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. So what does that mean for us? What it means for us is, number one, is theology matters. We live in a world where people don't want to hear about theology, they don't want to hear about doctrine. They, they, ah, don't give me no doctrine but Jesus. I'm going to tell you, if you have no doctrine, then you don't know Jesus. Right? If you have a weak theology, your theology is going to be mixed up with whatever the rest of the world is selling that sounds good and it seems compatible. Theology matters. Studying and having a correct theology of God and salvation and scripture and the church and even the end times itself matters. And what we see here is the disciples, along with just about every other Jew, was holding on to a flawed theology of the Messiah and a flawed theology of the end times. And today we see the same thing, just like the megachurch pastor we talked about. He has a flawed theology of God's sovereignty, a flawed theology of salvation, a flawed theology of Scripture itself. Theology matters. Secondly, contrary to some opinions, the Old Testament matters. It all matters. Just like Albert Moeller said, the church cannot unhitch from the Old Testament without unhitching the gospel that Jesus preached. We would not know what the gospel means without the Old Testament. The meaning of his, his life, death, burial, and resurrection just doesn't correspond with reality without, without it. As, as, as we see who Jesus is, right, and why he came and what he came to do, all those things are rooted in the Old Testament. If we don't study the Old Testament and take it seriously, we're compromising our understanding of the life-saving gospel of Christ. Now, please don't, please don't misunderstand me. Can you come to faith in Christ without fully understanding the Old Testament? Absolutely, you can come to faith. But you will never really grow in your theology. and You will be, you will be battered around by every wind of doctrine until you begin to get a handle on the Old Testament and how it matters. All Scripture matters because it's all the Word of God. And third, context matters. This is the... This is the one people want to push back on. Because people want to just take the Bible and go, okay, that's what that, Bible, that, that means to me. I want, you, I want you to hear me on this. What that scripture means to me is irrelevant. What the text means to me personally is irrelevant. What it means to you personally is irrelevant. What it means, as the author meant it and intended for it to mean, that's what's relevant. What's actually written down in context, that's what's relevant. You see, in order for, for, to draw out the, the, the truth of the text, we must read it, study it in its context. Its literary context, its immediate context, its historical context as we have just seen, and also in its full scriptural context. We cannot take a scripture and isolate it to make our point. We cannot interpret a scripture in a way that conflicts with the rest of scripture. And, and their understanding of the Messiah, the common understanding of the Messiah, was in conflict with what scripture was 
clearly teaching. By the way, this happens all the time. <laughs> People are, get so focused. It's easy to do. They get so focused on a theological position they just ignore or just can't seem to see the wider you know, teaching of Scripture. And, and it's, it's, it's true for today. One of the common things is, is people want to tie their faith to the social justice movement and begin to think in those categories of, of Marxism. Right? And you can certainly have your opinions, but you can't connect those things together cleanly. If you become obsessed with social justice, your, your gospel will be flawed. It's the same people who are obsessed with the end times. If that's all you think about, your, your understanding of the text is going to be flawed. Or even, how about people who want to take their faith and tie it to their political party? Right? Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians, they all are trying to do it. And if, and if you come to the Scriptures from that framework, you're going to end up with a flawed view of the Gospel. We must be careful to allow the text of Scripture to speak for itself in context, its full context, otherwise we can fall in the same error as these men. So theology matters, the Old Testament matters, context matters, and how how we apply this to our lives also matters. So how do we apply this? Well, the first thing I think that, that, that this should encourage us to, to is, is to be humble. Because the fact is that we're all flawed human beings, every single one of us. We're still sinners, prone to make mistakes. And not a one of us, not a one of us in this room has all the answers. We just, we just don't. We might act like we do. But there have been thousands of books and papers and articles written about theology in the past few decades, much less the last 2,000 years, and not a one of us have read all of them. Now, I do more than my share of reading, but I, I can't even make a dent in that. There's lots of people who also know more about some subjects than we do. And so it's important that we you know, are humble in our understanding of our theology, because what you think you know actually might be wrong. Just like these guys. If the apostles can be wrong, so can you. I know that me in my own life, in my own faith, as I've grown, there are some things I believe that I think, now I go, whew, I was wrong. I was way wrong about that. Secondly, was we need to be teachable. This goes hand in hand with, with being humble. We must be teachable. We must be willing to listen to others and examine their positions and test them in the light of Scripture, understanding that we always have more to learn. One of my greatest frustrations is to talk to someone who's dug into their position, but they never have studied all of the sides of an issue. They just go with what they've been taught, and they just refuse to listen or consider, or even at least for the sake of building their own argument stronger, consider what, 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 what else is being said, like eschatology. It's by my experience that some people are so dug in and that their views are so hard and fast and inflexible, right? and they're so unwavering, it's because they are completely unwilling to even consider what another author might say. The only people that they listen to or read about are the people that, that validate that point of view. Echo chambers are really dangerous, by the way. If you get into a room and all the voices are saying the same thing, you need to stop and go, wait a minute, let me... Let me double-check that. I think that it's healthy that we, we at least expose ourselves to views that are different than ours, at least so we know what they are. Right? We must always be willing to test what we believe, because if what we believe is the truth, it'll stand the test, which means we must be teachable. Third, we must be diligent, though. We need to be like the Bereans. We need to be people of the book. 
We need, we need to willingly read and study the Bible for ourselves. We must, we must work to know what we believe and why it is we believe what we believe. We must be willing to test every doctrine and every teaching and every word. I expect that, that, that when I teach from here, that, that someone is going back and reading the scriptures and going, I'm just double-check and make sure that he was, was seeing that the right way. Right? We must be diligent to search the scriptures. And then finally, we must be immovable in the essentials of our faith. Because there are truths that are just simply non-negotiable in the Christian faith. There are lots of things that we can disagree on, but there are certain things that are just immovable. You cannot, you get rid of them, then you're not a Christian anymore. Like the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the deity of Christ, that he is God in the flesh, the virgin birth, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of scriptures, and the fact that all scripture, every bit of it, is breathed out by God and important. The Christian faith is not built on a few isolated texts. The Christian faith is built on all Scripture. And we must absolutely stand firm in that and also build our life on that. And so let us then be humble in our approach, teachable. Let us be diligent, searching the Scriptures always, and immovable in the essential things. But then more than that, let us not just be hearers of the word. Let it not just be something that we learn. Right? Let us not become the theologians who just sit around talking. Theology is not meant to just make you smarter. It's meant to make you mobile. Let us then, by our theology and what we believe about Christ, be the catalyst that pushes out there so that we can go and share the hope of Christ. Because, brothers and sisters... That's the only hope they got. Their hope is not the government. Their hope is not more education. Their hope is not more laws. Their hope is not a great economy. Their hope is not the next election. Their hope is Jesus Christ. You have that hope. Now go share it with them. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.